Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Today, we're speaking with Toby Feakin, Australia's inaugural cyber ambassador, and who's been leading Australia's efforts on cyber diplomacy and capacity building around the world. He's been very active. Toby has a long history of experience in this area, and we're really looking forward to talking to him. What are you up to? What are you doing these days? So what am I up to? My God, all all sorts of things. Obviously, not traveling um, under current circumstances. So the kind of usual course of people face-to-face diplomacy isn't on the cards at the moment. But actually, my time and my team's time has been absolutely consumed with a couple of things. First of all, I guess, is dealing with what's been going on in and around the threat environment during this pandemic, which has clearly seen a retooling, retasking, repurposing of all sorts of different cyber capabilities, whether they be from criminal states, you keep seeing evidence of that in the media and various source material Um, And obviously, we see a lot inside the system through our intelligence feeds. So that has consumed a lot of time in dealing with that. And you'd have also seen that our Prime Minister on June 16th made a big announcement around a significant cyber incident that we're dealing with here in Australia. Um, And a couple of things to draw from that, one of which is if you look at the extent of where that has reached inside our system, it's broad. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. And the third paragraph of what he says, he he talks about hitting all levels of government, critical infrastructure, um, and a range of other targets. And also basically saying, this is the operating environment that we are now in, whether we like it or not, this is what we as modern nation states now have to deal with. And I think, you know, it's good to remind everyone of that, that we aren't in a time of every now and again, these things happen. It's constant and persistent. Uh, these kinds of issues that we're having to deal with. And the other thing, whilst dealing with all of these issues, because that does demand a lot of cross-government partnership um, to respond Mm -hmm. to it and make sure that we're reaching out to all our partners in the right way, I'm also being consumed with trying to think about what next in terms of strategy. So me and the team here have been uh, working very hard on a new Australian international cyber and critical tech engagement strategy to basically outline what it is we as Australia want out of the modern tech environment and how we think we can go about shaping that in a way that's as close to our interests and our partners' interests as possible. And and that's been a really important next step for us. And sorry, I'm probably jumping ahead in terms of the questions, Jim, um, that you were going to ask. But really, it's that's what we're doing now because it, we've been, I, and I've been cognizant a lot of how we need to be thinking about what next because this environment has accelerated more quickly than probably I envisaged in terms of the broader tech suite now that we have to talk about and think about through these kinds of positions, through your positions in think tank world and industry. Generally, now I don't think anyone envisaged at this juncture that this broader, you know, emerging tech environment, cyberspace being probably the most critical of all of those aspects, would be quite so central to the geopolitical shifts that we're seeing going on right now. But that does require that 
any government needs to think long and hard about exactly how it's going to play in that environment, especially if you're not one of the big key superpowers in tech, because then, you know, you're a tech absorber and you've got to think, well, what, what can we do to shape this so that we're going to get the most out of this and not be left by the wayside? Um, so basically, that's what we've been spending a huge amount of time on. And it's still in the works. We're still going through all the different mm-hmm. various clearances, processes and what have you. But you should expect to see that before the end of the year. And it's, it's a pretty big statement on what Australia wants to do now. And it does really move us on, I think, beyond where we've been and where, where this position started three and a half years ago. Well, I'll tell you just on that. This is your second international strategy, right? You guys have put out one before. And, and you know, just keying off your first observation about what's happening in Australia, particularly around COVID, which is a worldwide st- thing, and also what, what your prime minister said. You know, one of the challenges that, that I've always seen here is that you know, people care about this when a big emergency happens. But often people treat cyber as this boutique thing and not a core issue of national security or economic security or diplomacy. But it sounds like you think that's changing, uh, at least where you are. I think so. And I think it's um, sometimes it's, you know, you'd like to think all the efforts that you and other colleagues make, you know, Chris, you know, you blaze the trail and you, you kind of rely on your other cyber colleagues to raise the profile of the issue to make sure that everyone's thinking about it as far as possible and for industry to do their piece. I think it's just a map of accumulative events have now forcibly pushed it into the center of government in a way that you can't ignore. And any diplomat now worth their soul, if they're not thinking about the technology aspect of their job, and I mean how different companies in the countries that they're serving in or how the government they're representing or working with, if they're not asking questions around that technology landscape, then you're missing one of the key pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. I mean, you know, any listener here who reads any kind of the key outlets, you know, whether it be Foreign Affairs, The Economist, most broadsheet newspapers. Sorry, I say broadsheets, no one really reads them anymore, do they, physically? But you know what I mean. But, you know, you look at any of those publications now, and, and technology is absolutely the heart of it, whether it be, you know, US, China, and uh, the way that they are relating through technology, um, you know, and so-called tech wars and the like, to the business pages full of different details of, you know, whether it be TikTok deals or new startups or how the tech industry is now just booming through COVID time. It is absolutely central. And for look, for a tech nerd like me, I've spent, God, since my early 20s researching tech policy and new and emerging technologies. It's just bizarre because you've gone from being somebody who always felt like they were a bit obscure and you know, a bit out there, which you, we all still like, right? Um, to now realizing that what you're looking at is central to the way that the power dynamics of the 21st century are going to embody themselves, already are. How has tech conflict changed your job? I mean, you know, you're sort of very close to the center of the conflict. What's different from, say, a couple of years ago? Well, my seat's got warmer, that's for sure. Is that a good analogy? Well, let me just reflect firstly in the sense of seeing how, again, just reflecting on that slight shift that's gone on inside government. You know, and one of the reasons now that this is so central is that perhaps different areas of the system that thought, oh, this is still a boutique issue and, you know, we enjoy doing it, but we know it's still a bit part of our job. Again, the situation has pushed them so hard to have to be thinking about this continually that it just... It, it means that we are in a very different place, just pure and simply because of the number of different people and organisations inside government now who want to be involved and have to be involved necessarily. How has it changed the nature of my job? Well, I mean, there is, in no uncertain terms, you know, in Australia, over the last two and a half years, 
We've made very strong decisions domestically about you know, foreign investment, um, how we assess those kinds of investment avenues, how we implement legislation around espionage and telecommunications sector. And then I guess, if you like, the big issue which obsessed us all and still does in many respects is the whole 5G decision, which you know, for us is almost old news now. It was August yeah. 2018, right? That's a long time ago. And that was hugely significant because the spotlight did fall on us very quickly and has still remained on us whilst other countries go through their decision-making process. Toby, you guys, so, I think, were the first really to deal with that in a, in a really organized way. We, we were the first country to move in the way that we did. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. You're absolutely right. And it was a pivotal moment for Australia. And I think it a game changer genuinely in the way that other countries were looking at this issue as well. We had previous form, you know, we'd already been through decisions around our national broadband network um, back in the early 2010s. But with this issue, I think because it was part of that new emerging critical technology space, it really resonated in the international community. So from my position, what it meant was actually an increasing demand for a broader technology conversation beyond the traditional cyber diplomacy issues that we all know and love, whether it be international law, norms, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly you're getting requests of, that's a really interesting decision you made. What does that mean for Australia? You know, what are the processes? What led to that decision? And I think in August 2018, what happened was that you had a distinct shift in the kinds of subjects that you're being asked to talk about. And then you saw that emerge in the public space in terms of all the different conferences and conversations. You know, you've both been around these issues for so long. You found it as well, I'm sure, when you're at conferences and you're talking about side of this, side of that, and all the traditional things. And then suddenly you hit with, oh, well, what about 5G? And Jim, you know, you've, you've fingered me in the room many a time on 5G. And suddenly you're into a conversation about, you know, the wonders of AI. And everyone talks about this kind of ubiquitous thing called AI. And we all panic about that. But, and rightfully so, you know, it's good to have these conversations. But it's like a, a runway that all these technology areas are taking off on. And governments are trying to work out, well, what do we do about this? Because they're accelerating so quickly. And in government, I think we've all found, because we've all had time in government, getting that speed of policy decision, which doesn't get in the way, enables you know all the innovation and all the good things that you want around that technology space, but me- means that we're actually in the game is super hard. Um, and certainly, I think for us in Australia, that 5G moment gave us a different runway to thinking around these issues. So, you know, I guess in a really simple, my job expanded to now the ambassador for critical, sorry, cyber affairs and critical technology for that exact reason. So I was going to ask how your portfolio expanded. What is a critical technology? Is it AI? Is it quantum? What do you guys think of when you do this 5G cloud? Yeah. I mean, Jim, that's a really good question. And you'd probably understand as the, the government guy, I, I can't give like a kind of exhaustive lift or list of the sure, sure. So what we do in a classified sense is absolutely, we go through what we as Australia term and think of as critical technologies, obviously do a whole prioritization exercise around those and, and think about, well, what is it we want from them economically? What is it we want to protect? And what are the things that we want to shape in terms of, you know, the global norms and, and mm-hmm. standards environment? Essentially, at its heart, a critical technology is any technology that we as government deem will be essential to our national security or our economic future and to our societal 
cohesion, if you want to term it that way. Mm -hmm. So we give it that broad, very broad definition and shape for now, but inside a more kind of classified conversation, we absolutely kind of identify all the different critical technologies that we are interested in as government. And it's it's a pretty long list because there's a lot of, as ever, um, a pretty broad tech innovation cycle going on right now. However, if I'm thinking of a jumping off point for this position and the way that we're thinking about it is that essentially currently the most critical technology we feel we have is cyberspace in terms of the way that it feeds our economies, our societies and our operating environment. And then there's a whole series of other technologies that are either feeding off of infrastructure directly to operationalize themselves, if you like, or in any form, or they hoover the data through that means in order that they can then function off the back of it. So yeah, absolutely, you're right. AI, quantum computing, blockchain, you know, the, these kinds of technologies that you're beginning to see now really accelerate in the international environment. And you can see that countries are positioning themselves at the forefront of innovation in those digital technologies to position themselves for the 21st century economy. Those are the technologies that, if you like, are the first cabs off the rank. So, I mean, if you think about, again, I'm talking about ubiquitous AI, which any learned listener will kind of laugh at me for saying. (laughs) But if you think about an area like that, where the kind of algorithmic programming that's going on in that space right now will be setting and baking in certain trends for the foreseeable future in the next 50 years, you'll see the outcomes of those kinds of Mm -hmm. uh, algorithms programming if we're not in that game shaping what that looks like and what impacts it will have on our future societies right now in the next five years well then we, we should really stand by to be prepared to be shaped by what's being put in baked in right now and i think that's what governments are realizing it's like you know we need to get in the middle of this game and make sure that a conversation about values you know that's something that's coming out more clearly now in the tech space what are our values what is it we stand for what is it we think uh, how, how technology should be shaped and uh, innovated around and i think it, it's a slightly different step i mean yeah correct me if i'm wrong but you know it's it's interesting now how how often you will hear values come into a technology discussion yeah um, I, i'm interested in your views on that as well as two very experienced and learned guys what do you think about the values piece in in the technology space is it is it the right thing to be doing? What are the kind okay. of values you think are important? Yeah, in my view, it has to be part of it. I mean, especially as these technology is going to drive our social and economic future. But, but that sort of leads me to a question about both your new role or the expansion of your role and what you're saying is that often in the past, you talked about innovation, you talked about new technologies. There was a certain part of the community, even within government, that carried forward those, those things. And they're usually the economic parts of the government, not the security parts of government. Is your job to try to meld those together more? Because not that they were at war with each other, but they basically didn't understand each other very well. Yeah. I think you probably know that we've had a huge uh, mud wrestling experience for more than a year. More than 10 years in in various things, but more than a year in one thing. The the legislation to create your position has been stuck for over a year. So we haven't figured it out. If you have any advice, now's the time. (laughs) Um, Wow. I feel like I'm in a powerful position now without (laughs) maybe the exact task is to get it through. To Chris's point, no, actually, no, on the the second point, look, there's a different way that this position has been created, I think, to the US system. So, you know, the authority for this expanded mandate came through my minister. So she 
uh, and my department. So there was the ability to shape the extended mandate, which was cleared through um, central processing government last year. So it was a fairly um, straightforward process. And look, the one bit of advice I always give both inside with my own role, but externally as well, is that if we are not viewing the issues that we're dealing with in that more holistic across government view, being mindful at very least of what all our different interests and equities are. I know that it's harder to do than I make it sound. But, you know, the ideal position that I would love to see is, for example, um, a trade negotiator is going in to negotiate the next level digital critical technology bilateral trade agreement, right? That trade negotiator, if I can help put them in a position that they understand a bit more about what the national security implications might be of the technologies they're dealing with and what some of the decisions they make in that room, what the knock-on effects might be, then I've done my job. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if a member of the national security community goes in to talk about national security issues and the then mindful and understanding of some of the knock-on economic impacts, again, I've done my job. Because one of the benefits of being, I think, in, in a department like foreign affairs, wherever you might be in the world, is that you necessarily have to take that whole of government view. You, you are there representing your country, so all of your interests. And at times, yes, you will narrow it down through a particular lens. But if you can be mindful of what the impacts might be of those decisions, then you're in a good space. So one of the aims of this strategy is, you know, look, all parts of it won't appeal to everyone's mindset. But if they have a read, they'll understand what the like domino effect might look like. And I think then that helps us make better tech decisions in the longer term. And the more we can do to inside government to help ourselves make quick, agile decisions around technology, again, the better position we'll be in the future. We haven't asked you about how you interact with the private sector. I mean, what's that like? And you have two levels. You have both the Australian private sector, which is pretty good, at least on the cyber side. And you have the, then the global tech industry, which some of which have uh, very strong views on the issues you brought up. That's a new part of your portfolio, isn't it? Relatively new. Good question. And I think it, it goes to the heart of jobs like this. When I came into government, I went through a transition, which was from think tank land into government. And something that I felt very strongly about was that I wanted to maintain in a position like this. And I felt it was important for a position like this to embody that multi-stakeholderism, right? Right. Uh, Jim, I know how much you love hearing that term. And... <laughs> this is one area where Andre Krutsky and I agree, and it's never clear who is more frightened to have discovered that. <laughs> um, so, so something that I feel super strongly about is that I am as far as possible engaging with that community, wherever they might be, whether it be academia, whether it be various parts of tech industry, uh, the industry that are deeply impacted by cybersecurity issues and um, have a hand in, in broader tech environments. I've always felt very strongly that I need to be in that continual conversation. Now, one way can be through you know, just conferencing, workshops and the like, but I, I try and keep a regular tempo of contact up with various industry figures just to check on ideas on where we're pushing the work that we're doing, just to see if you know it's, it's marrying up with uh, their interests as well. And I, again, I think that's a really important part of these kinds of roles that you need to be doing that. So I want, I want to give you guys special credit too, because... 
I know you held some really uh, good ways to gather information and input for your positions in the OEWG, for instance, with a number yep. of stakeholders, uh, some formal processes for input into your national, your new uh, international strategy. I think a marriage of that informal and that formal seems to work really well for you guys. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's a great Aussie way, I think. We do have this way of trying to be you know, reasonably informal in the way we do our business. And that helps, I think, when you're engaging outside of government as well. But it comes from a genuine need and, and want from ourselves to understand what's going out on out there and what concerns are outside of our own four walls. Because again, if we don't think about that and incorporate some of the good thinking from outside of our group, well, then we'll, we'll again, we'll only stand to lose in the longer term. Thank you for the recognition on, on the international side, if you like, of, of the big multinational tech firms. Again, I keep regular conversations up with some of the very, very senior figures in Silicon Valley. It's, you know, they're, they're obviously the first port of call because, you know, they, they are the major platforms and still at the forefront of where everything in cyberspace is heading at the moment from a private sector point of view. We do that through various means. So I do it bilaterally, um, try and ensure that, you know, we're doing diplomacy on that side. We, we have something called a cyber tech retreat that we run with the Danish government, which brings together approximately about 25 different positions like this with senior industry figures to not recycle the same conversation, but to talk about, well, unless it's a very pertinent issue that's impacting us all, but it's to try and just take the conversation a step further. Um, and maybe introduce ideas that are in the offing from a policy point of view to see if there's any kind of jointering that we can uh, work on through that group. You're right, through through the OEWG and, and through our strategy process, we've been very open in saying, please give us your ideas, let us know what you think we should be doing, and we will listen. And, and the trick to it is, is making sure that industry academia can see words that they have provided you appear at least in part in in the work that you then produce the other end so i'm 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 really hoping and i'm confident that international companies domestic industry academia will see their words in the strategy that comes out it's it's not easy to do is there any major thing in the strategy that's going to be a departure or a change from what you were doing in the past one one thing we did with the first strategy which we've tried to embody again with the the second is that idea of pushing the boundary of what it is we're prepared to say as a country. And I still think, I stand by that, there are still things that were in that 2017 strategy, which still are beyond what many countries have said. It helps force a conversation that otherwise wouldn't take place. So I would say we're doing that again with this one. You'll see a few things said about that critical technology space in terms of trying to push the boundary about what law and norms might look like in that environment. I mean, let me give you just the kind of broad brush, the the, the elevator pitch. It's essentially saying we as Australia are a net technology importer, right? So we aren't at the moment, I wish we, we were, but we're not, you know, we're not the next Silicon Valley as it stands, but we are a significant shaping voice. We can help shape how that technology is absorbed into the global environment. And that's where we think we've got a huge value that we can assist with in the international environment and build on what we've done over the last, you know, three, four years. And so it's looking at, firstly, well, what are the values that we are going to talk about in, in the international environment and not be afraid of pushing in that international environment? Then what, it, what are the national security interests we have and what are the economic interests? And how do all of those tie together? I will tell you, it's a very action-orientated strategy. 
Um, there's a whole range of interesting deliverables about it. But I think be expected to just see that Australia is not afraid of saying things which are needed to be said in this environment. Sorry, I know I'm being a bit hazy and in a think tank world, I'd be shot down in flames if that was what I was going to write. Maybe it's, we can push that a little bit because one of the places where you did break the mold in the last one was talking about Australian offensive capabilities. And if you can touch on that at all, it might be, it might be interesting. And you can be as hazy as you want on this one. <laughs> well, Are you going to say in, something in, different, uh, something new? Do we need to say anything new? I think, Jim, interestingly, because if you look at the sum total of everything we've said around offensive capability, and not just in that strategy, but everything yeah. then subsequently said by agency heads and various others, we, we've put more into the public domain than most. Um, yeah. So I'm, I, I don't know if I'm entirely convinced that there's a lot more that we need to say on that front because there's so much there. And I think that is a leadership position that we should be proud of. And now I think it's time for others who, let's, let's be honest, won't even admit they have an offensive capability, but we know they love using it. A bit of a strange thing, isn't it? Um, do you, who you do you have in mind? Can, yeah. Oh, I don't, I don't know, Jim. You could probably tell me. I mean, there's a, you know, these guys, like, honestly, if you're not even willing to admit you've got an offensive capability, you know, come on, get with the plan. We need to be talking about these you know, as far as we have, because we think it helps state and underline and reinforce the fact, which is this is a capability that we totally understand is, is a legitimate capability that countries, of course, you know, they're developing these kinds sure. of capabilities, but if it's not done in, a, in the way of, you know, some boundary setting, well, then, well, unfortunately, we find ourselves in the kind of situation we are right now, which is it's a bit chaotic out there right now, isn't it? And again, I'm yeah. not going to get into that. We're in the Wild West, you know, love that phrase as well. Jim's going, he's going to mark another one off on his bingo card. <laughs> but Wild, moment, wild web. Oh, God, I love it. No, but I don't think that's going to change. I don't think that the uh, people on the other side of the fence are going to come out of the closet anytime soon. So that sort of complicates what you're going to do on this, doesn't it? No, it does. And that's why I would say to you, I think, you know, we've, we've said a lot already. And I think, you know, yeah. there's enough out there now, which thanks for recognizing that, because I think, you know, I want to commend my colleagues in those agencies for having said what they said. I think it's really important, but I, I genuinely don't think they need to go any further because now it's time for some catch up. I mean, something hopefully that others see is that, you know, we are practically minded. We want to try and set an example maybe of, of how you can operationalize some of the esoteric issues that we deal with. You know, one thing I was really proud of was the, um, and again, this would be one for the bookworms or, or those that are really interested, but, you know, the open-ended working group at the beginning of that process, our national level paper, we were really keen to make sure that we had written down there from the off how we operationalize the norms. Yeah. We just wanted to show that it can be done. It can be done and, and we can show where we allocate responsibility for those norms. And, and if people would like to, or other nations would like to just cherry pick some of that, great. Yeah. Why not? Again, I think that's something, and my minister talks about it as well, is about you know that degree of transparency as far as we can and, and pushing the envelope a bit further. That's what we've tried to do consecutively and we'll keep trying to do. You're speaking virtually at the SICW, but what advice would you give to the ASEANs on operationalizing norms? And sometimes I'm not always sure. They're, every year they're better and a lot of the credit there goes to Singapore and it goes to Australia as well. Yeah. What advice would you give them for where they are now? And, and I might broaden that a little bit though, mm -hmm. and say, what's Australia's role in that? What, what are you guys doing to kind of encourage and, and promote? Two really good points. I think ASEAN 
need, you know, should get a massive pat on the back. And Singapore have done a, mm. an awesome job in that regard, as have a range of other countries in the, in the region in trying to push that forward. ASEAN, I think, is in a really good place right now. You know, if you look at where the conversation was at Singapore Cyber Week last year, you look at the statement, it's, it's very much... It's in keeping with, you know, where the UN currently is and actually a bit beyond. So the conversation actually last year was getting to how do we operationalize the norms? And I know there's a range of countries, Malaysia, Singapore and others, who are looking to provide more practical guidance for other countries on how they operationalize these norms. So I think the conversation is in that kind of really good, healthy, practical space where ASEAN um, tends to uh, do really well in trying to take this a step beyond. And, and I mean, that's no mean feat because it took ASEAN a certain amount of time to actually come out with the statements it did two years ago, uh, where it was actually referencing UN reports um, and the norms, uh, 11 norms of behavior from 2015, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I think ASEAN's in a good place. Um, and I'm really interested to see during Singapore Cyber Week where, if you like, the next step will take us. And I would envisage that to be around the practical implementation of norms. Now, what, what's the role of countries like Australia in that? Well, one thing and, and place to, you know, all the things you're very uh, passionate about, Chris, is around capacity building. And the capacity building that we do does incorporate as well a fairly heavy tranche which looks at norms and law and, and trying to make practical sense of those as much as philosophical sense of some of those issues too. So, and we also try and ensure that through our capacity building, it allows inclusion of officials from countries who might not otherwise be able to be included in that discussion, and be involved. Uh, we do a huge amount of capacity building on the practical side so that countries are better equipped to deal with their own cybersecurity. And I'm really proud of the work that we've done there. It's uh, you know, the kinds of investments that we've made as a government have come off the back of seeing how well it works and the kind of good relations that it assists more broadly in bilateral relationships through doing work on cybersecurity. And that will now only accelerate in broader critical tech areas. Um, for again, some of the bookworms you may have seen, we signed a, a bilateral framework agreement with India on uh, cyber and critical technologies. And, and a certain amount of money went into that, about $12 million dollars. Mm. Um, so that we can work together on the kind of critical technology side as much as the cyber side of things. So we only see that kind of work accelerating because so many countries in our region are, it's a fascinating piece of the jigsaw puzzle to be involved in, are still at the connectivity point, yeah. but are doing the connectivity side of things whilst also having an eye on everything that's going on in the tech space, whether it be AI, 5G, tele border telecommunications sector, Anything that we can do to allow countries to be involved actively in that discussion, practically understanding how to implement the kind of things that are going on at the international level in the normative space, uplift cybersecurity, be better equipped to deal with telecommunications issues that are coming down the track um, and broader technology environment. Well, I think, you know, that's a great place for Australia to be and, and is embodiment of where this kind of diplomacy is going. Again, it was, and you'll know as well, Chris, often seen as a real bit part of your diplomacy. Now, my God, you imagine if there's any conversation that doesn't involve a slice of technology in it. And, and in our region, the technology, the speed at which this broad technology discussion and development cycle is going through is just a light speed. Where do you think international law fits in in an international system 
where at least two of the major players don't want to play by the rules. How, how do you make international law work in that kind of situation? You do raise a seriously important issue, right? Which is we necessarily and importantly spend a lot of time talking about international law, how it should apply online, as it does offline. And let's face it, that can be an incredibly arduous process when you perhaps feel that some of the parties aren't really, the head isn't completely in the game, let's say. But it means that you, you need to even more so be involved in that discussion and make sure that it's shaped properly. Now, the international law piece, we have already, I think, an awesome amount to work with, right? Even if you go back to 2013, international law applying, that gives a very sound basis for the really the next part, which is, well, if that's the case, and others who are far more expert in the UN processes than I in terms of, you know, the system and how it works, but, you know, that was, that was essentially 193 countries. It went through the process of 193 countries saying, yep, okay, that's good, agreed bang, hammer down. Um, I know I can be argued out and I'm oversimplifying everything. How about, how about doing that? Well, you know, really it's talking about consequences, isn't it then? Because, yeah. and that's, that's where we are now. And one of the reasons that we've been through attributions processes, why you see, you know, the EU just use their sanctions regime for the first time very recently, um, increasing numbers of indictments. You see all of these, all of these means to reinforce the fact that we feel there is already, and, and by we, I say we like-minded, you know, it's not, we're not just talking about Europe and associated Five Eyes countries. There's a whole range of other countries who are involved in this discussion. A kind of saying, well, look, enough's enough, because we have agreed to a whole lot in the international legal system here. And what we're seeing are these, a certain number of countries just pushing up to the boundaries of, if you like, what would become conflict and exploiting what everyone's calling the gray zone and we need to stand up for the fact that that's unacceptable and things like interfering in various democratic processes isn't okay you know interfering in another country's critical infrastructure isn't okay in peacetime and there's a whole range of activities that we have become far more proactive as an international community in calling out and it's vital that it's done as far as possible with a group um, to show that it's not just a, a kind of a tip for tap bilaterally the more countries you can have on a team sheet for an attribution or a response the better and so you know we as a country in australia have been through a whole stock take of all the different levers of government that we have to respond should we you know choose to use them and i think you're seeing increasing numbers of countries go through those processes and we have to normalize the way that cyber is perceived in the international system. Yeah. It's a really interesting if we want to get into it. I know it's a fairly older discussion, but the whole attribution question is a really fascinating one. We hold ourselves to such a high bar of accountability and attribution in the cyber community, like beyond what you would see in so many other areas. That's fantastic. It's a real credit, I think, to, if you like, the integrity of colleagues and how we do it. But equally, we need to be able to normalize cyber impacts in in the same way we would like a chemical attack for example attribution in cyberspace is complex it's hard but it should still resonate and be um as usable as, a, as an attribution in any other area and i mean chris it's interesting i'd be interested in your view on that as well in terms of the attribution question because we do it's a, it's a very complicated process but it's yeah. not impossible no it's not impossible i think that's the main message i think people over overestimate how possible it is 
And I do think you're right. We're held to a different standard that, you know, and certainly countries who are some of the, the wrongdoers like to hold you to even higher standards saying, I need absolute proof of something, both in physical world and in cyberspace. And yeah. being a former prosecutor, you never have absolute proof of anything ever. <laughs> so I guess the question is the joint attributions are good. But there are countries you really can't name and shame, or it's not going to really affect their behavior. So going to that right. response part you touched on, Toby, which again, I think is better if it's done collectively, as you said, are we really doing much more on that? You know, I, I think we haven't seen behavior change. We've seen these things get worse. It isn't like the physical world. Uh, you know, the take the scurple poisoning where Theresa May said it was, a, you know, said it was Russia in a week, imposed some pretty serious sanctions within two weeks. And then not petty, it took six months. So how, you know, how can you close that gap? How do we change the dial? Oh my goodness, you know, that, that is a very good question. The one thing that we don't do is suddenly give up on what it is we're trying to shape in the international environment right now. If you, as an international community, suddenly said, oh, well, you know, this isn't working, we need to perhaps stop, stop this, then, you know, I, I think you lose everything. You lose, you know, why you were doing it in the first place. The one thing that we have really gained from attributions is being able to have a far more clear conversation in public about what certain actors and what certain states do in cyberspace. If I think back three and a half years, it was a very strange moment when I realized I'm a government official and I can't talk about any particular country and what they do because that carries significantly different impact than when I was in a think tank and kind of saying wherever I felt. You know, we can talk about specific countries now and the activities that they have conducted. So, you know, I can, for us, from Australia's point of view, we've attributed malicious activity to North Korea, to Iran, to China, to Russia. Um, and there's a whole series of technical data that goes along with that that we can share with our private sectors and with the international community writ large. And I have genuinely seen in a multilateral setting how that information has helped shape perceptions and decision-making processes because other countries are more aware of what's going on um, and, and are a bit more aware of some of the realities and who may be responsible. And I think that in of itself is significantly important because it means you're, you're not having as clouded a discussion about, oh, who's doing what. There's a bit more clarity on the table. So I think we need to keep doing that. I think what we need to be we doing more of is the joined up approach. The more countries that we can have on the table who are comfortable with attribution and with a degree of recourse and response to specific activities when they are, if you like, reaching that threshold for attribution, then we get in a better place. So it's maybe not that we need to do more of these kinds of attributions, but when we do them, they carry a bit more punch. And look, I think the other thing for everyone to realize is that so much of this does go on behind closed doors as well. It's not everything that you will see in public. And I know that, yeah, that, that, that sounds like a bit of a get out, but not everything a government does is in clear view. And uh, yeah, there you go, there's statement bleeding obvious, but um, not everything you do in government is always gonna be you know, telegraphed and done in public. And that's a conscious decision in terms of how you apply the best levers that you have at your disposal. So I would say we need to reinforce our position and at times be prepared to be even more muscular in the way that we exert that position with partners and with as many partners as we possibly can. That's a great point maybe to end on because we've reached the end of our time. Do you have any final thoughts uh, before we sign off? Um, for me, it's just reinforcing the fact that it's, 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 which firstly, from a personal point of view, it is an absolute 
privilege, honour, but also a big pressure to know that you are in a position which, which genuinely has a, a significantly important role to play in terms of where geopolitics is right now. As I say, these kinds of positions that I hold now, they are more important than they've ever, ever been. And you know, the multitude of stakeholders you now need to engage with and the critical nature of engaging in this tech environment right now from a diplomatic point of view it is just obvious now for everyone to see and that's an honor to be in that moment right in that geopolitical moment to do that but there's a lot of pressure involved because if we get it wrong then it's easy for everyone to see and there's a lot of writing out there about where this may well take us and that isn't something that's favorable to the kinds of values that a country like australia or or the us holds so that's what I'd leave people with is, is if you are not interested in these issues, please do get interested in them. If you're in government, you need to be reading about these various new emerging technology areas. You need to get yourself more interested in the whole cyberspace discussion if you're not already. I'd find it hard to believe that many aren't now. But again, I'm, I'm a complete nerd on that front. And I think that's what I'd leave people with. It's This is the race for the 21st century economy that we are right in right now. And that means that we all demand a bit of our attention on it and we all have a significant role to play and, and you're enjoying yourself too i am honored and thoroughly enjoying this position it's okay. you know i couldn't think of a better position to be in in government right now that's a good note to end on awesome Thank, thanks thanks cool. guys right. as ever good to talk to you both